Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before introducing today's guest, I want to give you a summary of the recent survey we did of listeners. We put the survey up for about two weeks, not very long, and I know many of you found out about it after it was already down. I'm sorry about that, but we'll do another one down the road, and I'll let you know when that's available. But even in that short time, over 500 people went to the EconTalk homepage at econtalk.org and found the link and clicked through and filled out the survey. I want to thank everyone who participated. It's incredibly helpful and gratifying to find out more about your habits, your likes and dislikes, dislikes and suggestions for improving EconTalk. Now, here's some of the results. The most common way you discovered EconTalk was via iTunes. A number of you want to be able to subscribe to all of our archive via iTunes rather than downloading them one by one at econtalk.org. We're working on that. But I do want to mention that every podcast that we've done is available at econtalk.org on the archive page, and uh, it's it's available without charge. And a lot of you would make a suggestion, you ought to interview so-and-so, and it turns out we've already in- interviewed so-and-so, it's at the archive page. So if you're hungry for those past uh, episodes and we have not gotten yet to this uh, iTunes fix, please uh, help yourself and download them. You can listen to them or download them onto your, onto your machine. Then you can transfer them into iTunes manually that way if you want. But we will soon have, uh, I hope, a uh, annual archive so you'll be able to download all the podcasts for a particular year via iTunes. A little over half of respondents to the survey listen to EconTalk either in their car or at their computer at home. And those two ways of listening were pretty equally divided. Many of you, of course, listen while exercising or walking to school or while having dinner or while working, which is uh, quite impressive. Uh, I really like being part of your lives. And other than your emails, I have no idea of what you're doing out there and how you experience EconTalk and uh, how you listen. So it was fantastic to find out about the different ways that people um, uh, have it as a weekly experience. When I asked for your favorites, about a third of the listeners mentioned Mike Munger. That's a bit frightening, and it did make me question the statistical validity of the survey. Uh, just kidding. Uh, Mike is a very popular guest. Uh, other favorites included Milton Friedman, Nassim Taleb, and others. We've created a new category in the archives at econtalk.org called Favorites that is a mix of your favorites and mine. So check it out. If you're a new listener or want to encourage a new listener, it's a good place to start. Now, a number of podcasts were among the most liked and most disliked, which is, of course, a challenge for me uh, and us that uh, sometimes we'll put something up that's uh, loved by some and hated by some, and we try to uh, have all the podcasts be loved by all, but, of course, that's impossible. So, for example, a number of you were uh, have been encouraging me for some time to find guests that are uh, in political or philosophical disagreement with the uh, general uh, philosophy and and um, views here of the host, that's me. Uh, and we do that from time to time, and I try to do it more often, actually. A lot of the people on the other side of the political or methodological spectrum don't always want to be guests on the show for whatever reason. Uh, so I'm always happy when they, when they come on. Of course, once they're on, 
a number of you don't like those kind of podcasts. Uh, you 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 send me angry emails uh, asking why I'm interviewing people of such views. But I do think overall it's important to have a mix of guests. I think people do enjoy hearing people with different perspectives. And I think they particularly like hearing the give and take. And I, I try to do that uh, as well as I can. It's a challenge sometimes. But I think that's uh, a really uh, important. So from time to time, I will try to have guests here who have a different perspective from mine and to engage them in a non-angry and what I hope is a thoughtful and educational way. Um, about a third of all responders to the survey are from outside, were, were from outside the United States, which was incredibly fun. Uh, English-speaking countries dominate that uh, list of outside the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, the United Kingdom, New Zealand. Uh, but there's a healthy representation from Europe and particularly Scandinavia and from all around the world. Overall, survey respondents live in 46 different countries, which is really exhilarating. You're a very diverse group. Some of you are econ grad students or professors. Some of you have never been to college. Some of you have never taken an econ class. You're young and old, male and female. You're all over the map in all kinds of ways. And I'd say what makes it fun to be with you every week is, as far as I can tell, almost all of you, one thing that's not very diverse, almost all of you are intellectually curious. And reading your comments, which were incredibly uh, thoughtful and uh, and kind and time-consuming. I really appreciate the time you put into giving me your feedback. All of your comments, your reactions, uh, they make me want to make EconTalk better and better. So thanks for all the wonderful suggestions for guests and ways to improve things. We're working on those. And finally, all of you out there are the best way to help us get the word out that EconTalk exists. There's not a lot of marketing going on, so please tell your friends and family. Tell complete strangers. Uh, we're now getting about 90,000 downloads from the archive each month. We don't have 90,000 listeners. I assume some of those downloads go off into the, the ether, but um, our audience is growing, and uh, you're, you're the reason. So please, I'm very pleased at how many people are out there, how many are listening, and how many are engaged, but we can do better. So please keep telling people about EconTalk. Now on to this week's guest. I'm going to try something a little bit different today. There's no guest, just me. And I'd like to share some thoughts on an issue that I hear people talk about from time to time, an issue related to inequality and mobility in America's economic system. As always, I'm interested in your feedback. So if you have any reaction to this type of format or this issue, uh, drop me an email, mail at econtalk.org. Every summer, I teach a seminar for journalists, and at one point in one of the seminars in the past, one of the participants, a national correspondent for the network news, mentioned in passing that, of course, capitalism always requires someone at the bottom to do the menial tasks. The cutting of lawns, the painting of houses, the collecting of garbage, waiting on tables, and so on. And his implication was that the system requires poor people. Capitalism requires poor people to do these horrible, unpleasant jobs, jobs that he had done for him by workers that he did not want to do himself as a successful person. And the implication of this was, was that if all the poor people got rich, 
and didn't want to do those jobs anymore, then the jobs wouldn't get done and the whole system would just collapse. So the system is designed to keep some people down in order to keep others comfortable and rich. I think that view is pretty widely held by uh, – at least by more than one person. He, he's not alone in, in saying and feeling that. I think there are a lot of people out there who feel that way. And what I wanted to do in this podcast is talk about the economics of that claim uh, and whether it's a reasonable claim or not. There are two ideas that are implicit in the view that I want to look at more closely. First, let's ask the question, do poor people sustain the prosperity of the rich? That is, is it the existence of poor people that allows some of us to be comfortable and to thrive? Is a so-called underclass necessary to do all these unpleasant tasks for us? And then the second question, which would be related, is, is the system designed that way to keep poor people poor, to keep people down so that the rest of us can be comfortable and, and succeed and do well? Uh, another way to ask this is to ask, what would happen if the poor got richer? Would that be good for the rich or bad? And a similar question arises when we talk about nations. Some people think that the wealthy nations oppress the poorer ones. In colonial times, they took the poor nation's natural resources and exploited the people who lived there and those resources. Today, the richer nations, some claim, take the poorer nation's labor. And according to this view, we need poor nations – just like we need poor people in America, we need poor countries so that we can have cheap Nikes and a Walmart made bar Walmart bargains that are made by poor people outside the United States. And we have to keep these people poor who make our shoes and our clothes and other goods because otherwise we'll fall back. Our standard of living will take a hit. So the whole system, again, is rigged so that poor people can uh, serve us, force them to serve us. Uh, another domestic variation on this theme is that Walmart pays low wages to keep its low prices so that the whole thing is a scheme that Walmart has concocted to make poor people suffer. So they pay low wages. That's what they have to do so they can give us those bargains. Another variation of this idea is about the top 1% of the income distribution. Uh, allegedly, they perceived enormous proportions, the top 1% or the top 10 or the top 20% have made enormous gains in recent years, but the rest of us or the median or the average person, the typical person, is just treading water. That they've somehow, that the top 1% have somehow figured out a way to keep all the economic productivity for themselves, and unlike in years past, they don't, they don't share it with others. Now, implicit in all these claims is the idea that the economic pie is zero-sum. Uh, your slice comes at the expense of my slice. And for your slice to get bigger means that somebody's slice must get smaller. A uh, different way to say this is that to get ahead, you have to push people down. And I think, you know, I think people, when they think about this claim, they look at someone like Sam Walton or Bill Gates, and they say, well, look at all the money that that person has gotten from selling the stuff that they make. And it's obviously come from somewhere. It's come from the, the customers. And so obviously the wealth and, and advantages and success of a Bill Gates or a Sam Walton comes from other people. So if they had given their – if they hadn't existed, the implication is people would have more money and therefore the wealth of a Bill Gates or a um, Sam Walton comes at other people's expense. Now, uh, 
the other implicit claim behind these claims about how the world works is that someone is in charge. The rich, the top 1%, the richest nations via the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, or the World Bank, that these groups or individuals, they're in charge, they control the economic system, they set the wages, they assign the tasks, they decide who is in chains, and they decide who shall be free and who shall be comfortable. Now, I, of course, as any listener to this um, uh, podcast knows, I have a different perspective on economic rewards. I see them as fundamentally being emergent, the result of individual choices rather than a top-down design system. So when people talk about the top 1% as some sort of conspiracy, uh, I don't really uh, understand that or agree with it. An editorial writer at a major newspaper once uh, explained to me that indeed the top 1% were, were keeping all the gains for themselves. And I asked them how they managed to do that. And he said, well, we just haven't figured that out yet. But since obviously since it's happening, it must be the case that it is uh, there is some system. And in recent years, there have been some books and articles written about this. Uh, I don't find them very compelling, but there, there's a uh, – I've noticed in, in the last few months a number of economists invoking uh, some, some explanations, not without, you know, without much empirical support, but invoking explanations for how the, pe- the rich are somehow controlling the system. A standard argument you'll hear is that you know, they've weakened the power of labor unions. Uh, they've 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 strangled labor unions so that that used to be the way that the little guy kept uh, the some of the economic pie for himself. And now that unions have been weakened, of course, it's the case that the little guy gets virtually nothing and the rich get everything. Now, the problem with this argument, just to take this for a moment, digress with on this for a moment before we come back to the main thread. The problem with this argument is that unions have been weakening in the United States not since the 70s, which is when people like to people like to point to either two times. They either point to the 70s because that's when measured uh, standard of living seems to be stagnant. I would argue it is not stagnant. I think that's a misreading of the data, but there are some pieces of empirical evidence that suggest that the 70s were the high watermark of the American economy. I say that with almost a laugh. Uh, because anyone who was alive in the 70s will find that claim hard to believe and are much more likely, as I am, to believe that the numbers are misleading. But they'll pick the 70s for when unions started getting weak because that's when some uh, economic measures looked uh, very good. Or they'll pick the 80s. They'll pick on Ronald Reagan. They'll say, well, he broke the air traffic controller strike. That was really the end of the labor movement. And since then, the little guy, the average person, has been uh, suffering at the hands of the rich or the cabal at the top or the top 1% or the – you name it. The problem with both of those arguments, whether it's the 70s argument or the 80s argument, is that labor unions have been fundamentally weakening since the 50s. Uh, the 50s were the high watermark of labor unions in the private sector, at least. Some gains in the public sector uh, and government employees, but if we stick with the private sector, labor unions have been falling as a proportion of employment. Their representation has been falling dramatically, steadily, since the 1950s. So it's hard to argue that it's something that started in the 70s or the 80s. Uh, you'd have to argue there's some uh, cumulative effect that once labor unions drop below a certain percentage, then suddenly they're powerless. Before that, they're fine, and they've helped everybody. But in fact, it's hard to argue that. Um, 
In fact, what I would suggest is the cause of labor unions weakening power is in some sort of conspiracy, but the kind of jobs that get done in the United States. And as manufacturing jobs have been eliminated via two factors, globalization and productivity, the ability of unions to unionize in service sector businesses is, is limited. There are some. You know, they try to organize the hospitals and the food service business. They struggle. They're, they're, they're fighting, a, I think, a losing battle. But in general, the reason that labor unions have been struggling over the last half century is not some conspiracy, but rather simply the changes in the kind of jobs Americans do through, as I mentioned, started to say, globalization and most importantly, productivity changes. As manufacturing workers have become more productive in the United States, there's simply fewer of them. And as a result, unions have less of an easy way to get representation. Now, the question is whether that's been good or bad for folks. Well, in the 50s and 60s, as labor unions declined, our standard of living rose pretty steadily. 70s weren't a great decade, but I'd argue the 80s and 90s were and that the data that suggests otherwise are misleading. And we'll save that for another podcast. I'll put a reading up on the website that gives you some of that information and background on why I think those numbers are distorted. But the simple point I want to make is that come back to the main thread, is that people who think that the American economy is somehow being controlled by a handful of powerful people or groups of powerful people or a small, sinister conspiracy have to have, I believe, an argument as to how that's happened. The standard argument you hear, the mechanism, what's the mechanism? How is it? If it's really true that there have been some fundamental changes in the ability of people to share in the economic bounty, how is it that it's not obvious how that changed? So one of the arguments you hear is the union argument. I've suggested that's hard to sustain empirically. The second argument you'll hear is the minimum wage, which is absolutely absurd because it, the minimum wage has never been an important part of, of a large number of people's employment uh, compensation. It, there's a small group now in the United States. It's about 3 percent, a little less than 3 percent of hourly workers who earn the minimum wage. But it's never been a large proportion, so it's not like you know, it used to be the government made sure that workers were protected through the minimum wage. And I would argue, of course, that that's a good thing, that the minimum wage is not a particularly good way to spread prosperity. In fact, it hampers it uh, for the, for the low-skilled person. But if you don't agree with that, you think that the minimum wage is important. It can never have been too important in the 50s, 60s, and 70s because it just never covered a sufficiently large number of people to be – a very good explanation for why people were doing well. So the fact that it's been weakened over time can't be an argument for why suddenly the rich are getting all of the gains. So to, to stick, go back to our main argument, uh, this idea that, that the economic world is zero sum, the idea that the rich are getting rich at the expense of the poor, you know, there are a couple of important points to make uh, on the other side. The first is the top 1% um, are not the same people in 2008 as they were in 1998 or 1988 or 78. Um, obviously, there are people who climb into the top 1% like LeBron James, the basketball player, or Sergey Brin, the founder of Google. Somehow, when they were phenomenally successful in either providing an entertainment product like LeBron James's basketball skills or an amazingly 
wonderful tool like Google, that suddenly vaulted these people who had not been in the top 1%, not even close. Sergey Brin is an immigrant. LeBron James is not a particularly wealthy, did not come from a particularly wealthy family. These people were suddenly vaulted into the top 1% because they were successful, because they provided something that people liked. And that allowed not only for them to go into the top 1%, but for the top 1%, to be measured as having, say, a larger share of the pie because of the incredible gains that accrued to the people who did something incredible. Um, education is still a tremendous route to prosperity in America. If you stay in school and you go on to college and you major in something that has value, you'll do better than if you don't. Uh, there's nothing holding you back. There's no sinister conspiracy. Uh, Overwhelming empirical evidence and common sense says that if you stay in school and learn some valuable skills, you'll make more money than if you don't. So there's nobody stopping that from happening. There's nobody stopping people from innovating and coming up with new ideas like Google that can put you in the top 1%. As P.G. O'Rourke puts it very, I think, wisely, wealth is not a pizza. There is no sense in which my success makes you poorer. In fact, in general, one person's success makes other people richer, not just in the monetary sense, but in the full sense of the word. So when people complain that Bill Gates or Sam Walton uh, have to give something back, they have to be charitable, uh, both, both people uh, are and were. Uh, Bill Gates is very charitable and Sam Walton's uh, family and foundation is, and Sam Walton was when he was alive, but they don't owe people something. To say you have to give something back implies you took it. But Sam Walton and Bill Gates didn't get wealthy by taking. They got wealthy by providing a product that people preferred to the alternative and only chose that alternative, excuse me, only chose the, the Microsoft or the Walmart alternative because they found it more beneficial than the alternative. So that they true, they did give money to Bill Gates and Sam Walton, but they got something in return that they evidently valued more highly. So they, through that voluntary exchange, were made better off as was Walton or as was Gates. So it's very important to realize that wealth is not a pizza, that it isn't a fixed pie, that one person's share does not mean that other people get less. And it's obvious when you think about this over time how true it is. It's obvious that over time, America in 2008 compared to 1908 is a very different place where you would be very happy having a smaller share of the pie in 2008 relative to 1908 because the pie is so much bigger. It's amazingly dramatically larger. So getting a large share is not an indictment that you've somehow harmed people, pushed them down, taken what was theirs taking an unfair share, just uh, not the way the distribution of, of well-being in the United States at least uh, works. So um, the zero-sum game, gain, uh, excuse me, the zero-sum game that some people see the economy being, I think, is a untenable claim. But let's turn to this um, variation on this, which I think is where we started with the journalist claim that somehow our well-being depends on the suffering of other people at the bottom because they have such a tough time, they're going to be willing to do horrible things that I don't want to do. 
uh, and as a result of that, uh, I benefit. So the claim here is that as successful, wealthy Americans, we want to have lots of poor people because that's good for us. Uh, that's good for us because they'll cut our lawns and paint our houses and do all the unpleasant tasks that we don't want to do. And similarly, as a nation, America wants to have lots of poor countries because then they'll be willing to make our shoes cheaply, our clothes cheaply, et cetera, et cetera. And that somehow the whole system is predicated on there being people at the bottom to do the nasty tasks. Um, so in this view um, – you know, the, um, the goal of life is to get one of these good jobs. Uh, you want to be the Major League Baseball player, the basketball player. You want to be the corporate lawyer. Uh, you want to be the person who designs the iTunes interface. You want to avoid the jobs like garbage collector, busboy, waiter, lawn cutter, etc. And in this view of the job market, each job comes with a barcode associated with it. And the pay of the job salary is part of the job itself. So there's a box and uh, jobs are like boxes. You, you want to get into the corporate lawyer box because the corporate lawyer box, the barcode on the outside of the corporate lawyer box has a big salary attached to it. So when the scanner goes over the, the barcode of the corporate lawyer, that's the box you want to be in because you get a big salary. And you don't want to be in the salary that says busboy because that's got a low salary. Um, and in this view, the goal of each worker is to find the best possible box to be in. So you want to pick a job category, a job description that's got a high wage attached to it. So in the conspiratorial view of the market economy, we, whatever that means by we, we have to make sure that there are people who are going to be stuck with those horrible jobs. So we want to have these poor, desperate people who are always willing to take these jobs. Otherwise, they'll go unfilled. And this is a you know, a variation on the Marxist uh, reserve army of the unemployed idea. Um, at the national level, at the country level, uh, it's the same idea in this view. It's not my view, but this is the, the argument that uh, we want to be – America wants to be successful, has to have the good-paying jobs. So we want to be uh, designing the software, not just uh, retailing it. And I, I, th you, I may have told this story before. I always find it amusing – uh, in the early 1990s, there was a frontline documentary, maybe in the late 80s, a frontline documentary that America was being destroyed by Japanese strategic economic planning. We were naive. We let people do whatever they wanted and take whatever jobs they wanted and let the chips fall where they might. But in Japan, they had a strategy, and the strategy was they knew that it was important that the wealth of a nation depended on the kind of jobs it had. And so what was going on in Japan? Japan was getting the jobs designing Nintendo, designing these cool, very high-value-added games, and Americans were getting stuck doing the, cons the customer service part of the game so that when the game didn't work well or people were confused on how the software worked, they would call in and they would reach uh, an American and that those were the low-paying jobs. But we wanted to keep those high-paying jobs of designing the software, but the Japanese kept those for themselves. And this was one of these, again, conspiratorial top-down arguments. You know, it's kind of ironic that uh, 10 years later, Americans were worried that we were losing all the customer service jobs to India and Ireland and other outsourcing outposts, uh, China, 
be uh, so the, these so-called uh, horrible jobs in the 1990s, which was answering the phone and doing customer service, were suddenly the jobs we wanted to keep. Uh, very strange schizophrenia in the uh, protectionist worldview. But the idea in this worldview, the, which I associate with with Ross Perot for reasons I'll mention in a minute, the idea behind this worldview was that America needs the high-paying jobs. We don't want the low-paying jobs, and the way that Ross Perot described it, it's better to make computer chips than potato chips. The idea being that the computer chip jobs, Intel and others, those were the high-paying uh, good jobs. But if we weren't careful, those would be stolen from us and we would be left uh, making potato chips, which was presumably a low-paid, low-skilled job. Now, in the alternative view, a view which I think is correct, the jobs that are available and the, ta the tasks associated with those jobs depend on the people who are interested in working and the skill levels those people have. In this view, the barcode, the thing that gets scanned to determine your salary, isn't on the box that describes the job you're in, but it's on you. Your salary and benefits and the pleasantness or unpleasantness of your job depend not on the box you find yourself in, but rather on the skills that you bring to the job. It's true, at any point in time, you have a job title and a salary might be attached to that job title, but that's because of who is in it. There are no fixed number of jobs to get done. There are no fixed definitions of jobs. Which jobs exist and how they're done depend on the skills of the people. So if Haiti decided that the road to wealth was to have high-paying jobs and decided to start a pharmaceutical industry, I don't think they would do very well. Uh, similarly, if I decided, gee, I like to make a lot of money. I'll be an NBA basketball player, but alas, I'm only five foot six. Somehow, if I can jump into one of those really good NBA high-paying boxes, oh, that would be awesome. But of course, it doesn't work that way. I'm five foot six, limited leaping ability. I can't get into that job. So to plan on getting into that job somehow would be an enormous error. It would be costly for me to start working hundreds of hours a month on my basketball skills because I want to get one of those jobs. So the Ross Perot view that it's better to make computer chips than potato chips, my answer to that is, well, it, it depends on what you're good at. If you're not good at computer chips, making computer chips is not going to be the road to wealth, but rather the road to poverty. And you know, a version of this would be China under Mao Zedong when they were going to let a thousand flowers bloom and everyone was going to have a steel foundry in their backyard. Well, being self-sufficient in steel by having your own steel foundry has a certain appeal. But of course, if you're very bad at making steel, as most of us are as individuals, whether we're wise in the ways of steel or not, uh, having a steel foundry in your own backyard would be a rather inefficient way to make steel. And so that didn't make China wealthy. It made China very, very poor. Let's take a look at this issue of jobs and the kinds of jobs uh, at a point in time and then over time because I think that will give us the deepest insight into what's wrong with the argument that somehow the system requires poor people and that we want people to stay poor. So at a point in time, let's look at, at garbage collection. There are a lot of ways to collect garbage. Uh, 
in some societies, uh, you just walk along the street with a can or a canvas bag and you collect the garbage on foot and you towed it back. In a slightly better version of that, there's a truck and a bunch of people walk alongside the truck throwing the garbage into the truck either by hand or with a basket uh, or other mechanisms. Or in the current world in the United States, you can have a really, really fancy truck. And in the fanciest uh, trucks in the United States, the garbage collector isn't really a garbage collector. He's just a truck driver, which is much more pleasant than being walking along the street carrying garbage in your hands. What the garbage collector is doing in the United States is he's driving a truck that has extraordinary technology in it. The technology has an arm at the back of the truck that picks up the garbage can that's on the street and then empties it mechanically into the back of the truck so that the garbage collector never touches the garbage. That is a lot more pleasant. So in the United States, there are only a few people working in the garbage sector, garbage collection sector, whereas in poorer societies, there are people, many, many more people in the business of collecting garbage if garbage is collected at all. Um, what's phenomenal about the way it's done in the United States is how pleasant it is relative to the way it was done, uh, way it's done elsewhere in the world. And the reason it's done that way is because we are a wealthy society. It is hard to get people to walk behind the truck, and that's okay. That's good. The technology substitutes for the person, which sounds bad because that means fewer garbage jobs, but that's good because that means more jobs doing something else. It's easier to pick up garbage with a truck. It's more pleasant, and it is more profitable to do it that way, although it's rarely done as a for-profit business. It's often done municipally as a public business, public activity. But if we think of it as a private business, it's better and more profitable in the United States to do it with a truck that's very uh, technologically advanced rather than with lots of individuals carrying the garbage by hand. And that's because of America's higher standard of living than the average country in the world. And that's what that means is, is that it is profitable to use the machine that would not be profitable in a poorer society. So obviously, it's not inherently good for America to have lots of people available to pick up garbage. Uh, if, if that were true, then the truck wouldn't be rational. But because there aren't so many people, the truck becomes rational. So who, who would argue, oh, America would be a better place if we had even cheaper garbage? Because that would mean that we could afford to pay a lot of people scurrying around the truck rather than the one truck driver. It's clearly better to have one truck driver, have the technology be doing most of the picking up, and have all the people that would have been behind the truck picking up the garbage by hand, as it's done many places in the world, those people are now available to do something else more productive and attractive that makes our lives better. Not just their lives, our lives. Let me give you another example, which, uh, which I like from the uh, Ross Perot story. Ross Perot said it's better to make computer chips than potato chips. Uh, what he, the image that that, that, st that statement or claim creates in your mind is on the one hand, you have the computer chip manufacturer. You have people in these white suits and these incredible sterile environments doing this incredible production of these incredibly technologically advanced computer chips. Then you have the potato chip makers. The potato chip makers, you have – you think of a big room. In the room are a lot of people sitting around with a big basket of potatoes next to them. In their hands, a potato peeler. So what they do is they take the potatoes and they peel them. 
and then they take a slicer or a knife and they cut really thin slices of the potatoes. Then they take the potatoes and they put them into a hot oil, into some sort of deep fryer, and they fry them. And you can see the, the sizzling potato chips in the oil and the person carefully watching until it looks like they're brown enough. And then that person empties the chips onto some kind of drying place, some paper towels or something. And then they put them into a little bag and they seal the bag. And that's how you make potato chips. And it's just a very low-skilled, low-technology, uh, low-capital uh, industry. It's basically mostly labor and the wielding of the knife, the wielding of the deep fryer, the, the shaking out of the chips. It's, it's menial work. Well, it turns out that's not how potato chips get made in America. The way potato chips get made in America, at least, and I'm sure they're made by hand in lots of places, and some people make their own potato chips for fun in their kitchen as a gourmet experience, uh, getting in touch with their food. But the way that if you go down to the grocery store and you bag, buy a bag of potato chips, here's how it got there. In the potato chip factory, it's not a few hundred people sitting around on the shop room floor slicing and peeling potatoes and deep frying them. A truck full of potatoes backs up to the factory door. The potatoes go into an enormous machine. The machine peels the potatoes, slices them really thinly, which better than you could do by hand, and then proceeds to fry them in oil or bake them, depending on the kind of potato chip, and then flavor them and flavor them with remarkable precision. You don't get a potato chip with a zillion pieces of mesquite barbecue flavor and some that are, that are plain. It's an incredible process. Put them into bags automatically and then packages them into uh, probably into crates to, in boxes to send off to, to distributors and groceries. They're almost, there's al they're almost nobody, there's almost no worker in that experience of potato chip making. There's somebody who runs this incredible machine. It's an enormous computerized um, ex you know, machine. But that person's main job is to make sure that it's working, that it's not broken. And when it breaks, a light probably flashes or a bell goes off and they have to call the maintenance people. But there are no workers peeling those potatoes. Those jobs are, again, too medial, not profitable to be done in a, in a rich society. They're done by machine. It's a much, much more pleasant experience, and it's remarkably inexpensive. Data chips are relatively inexpensive because that technology is so powerful and so good. It can do so many potatoes. And, of course, there are jobs that are hidden behind that process. The, you know, the one person sitting at the, at the control panel of that machine or the two people, whatever number it is, and there are a lot more people involved. They're the people who design those machines, the people who built them. Their, their labor is embodied in that potato-making machine in a way that it's, that it's hard to notice, but they're in there. But the actual number of workers doing the so-called menial task of making the potato chips, there aren't any. There's maybe one or two. And those people make a decent living, by the way, even though all they're doing is keeping an eye on the machinery. But they're productive because they're working with that incredibly advanced uh, machinery. So over time, the types of jobs that get done in a successful economy change. They're not fixed. Uh, there are all kinds of jobs that used to exist in America that don't exist anymore. Brutal, dangerous jobs, unpleasant jobs. The job of the Iceman, a person toting around an enormously heavy block of ice, that person doesn't exist. That, that was a relatively low-skilled job, required physical strength. Uh, it doesn't exist because it's been replaced by a refrigerator, which is a much more pleasant and wonderful way to uh, keep things cold. 
than an ice box with a big block of ice. But America didn't need people at the bottom of the distribution to be an ice man. That's absurd. We're thrilled when they're replaced by the by the by the uh, refrigerator, as is the Iceman. Because the Iceman's standard of living and the standard of living of the Iceman's children and grandchildren is going to be much better when that awful job is eliminated by the refrigerator and it's now possible to do something more pleasant. Now, of course, I want to point out that when the refrigerator comes along, the transition, when the people who are in the ice business have to now find something different to do, that can be abrupt and challenging and difficult. But it clearly is not the case that we somehow need ice man jobs at the bottom of the income distribution. Uh, we don't need people to shovel manure much in the United States anymore. We don't need many people to make steel a very dangerous job or to work on the farm with very uh, dangerous equipment. There are a few people working on the farm. A couple percent of the United States workforce is, is still in agriculture. But that's glorious. That's wonderful. In 1900, about 40% of the American workforce was in agriculture. Uh, it's now about two, as I said. And that transition, which took place over mostly the first half of the of this 20th century, the, the biggest part of it, there were some challenges for people in the farm business. But the reason it happened is that because we've got this incredible technology to produce food. We got incredibly better at producing food. And that was great because that meant we didn't need as many people in the food business to keep us fed. And that meant that all the people who would have gone into agriculture in 1950 or 2000 compared to, to this, you know, the same number in 1900 didn't have to do that. They were freed up to do a bunch of other stuff that made people's lives better, including theirs. Because farm working is dangerous and it's long hours. And so by replacing farm jobs, not through anyone's intention, by the way, it wasn't designed. It came about through people's natural inclination to invest in different skills and to find improvements in the productivity of agriculture. That transformation of the agricultural sector, it was, was glorious for most, if not almost all farmers, certainly their grandchildren have better lives than they did in terms of material well-being, but, but the millions of other people around the world, in the United States and elsewhere, who now were able to have in less expensive food because of these productivity improvements. So, that there, so there's two points here. One is those productivity improvements were phenomenally great for most Americans and for people outside of America who were able to get inexpensive food. But more importantly, to the point we're talking about now, we certainly didn't need low-skilled people to be farmhands and workers on farms. We didn't want to keep those people down. We didn't want to stop those technologies from being invented that made agriculture more productive. Because that way we, we could keep these people at the bottom of the ladder as, as pick, pickers of, of, of crops. That's wrong. We want technology to come along to eliminate those jobs. And I, again, that sounds – there's a paradox there. I want to make sure this is clear. Technology usually, by making workers more productive, eliminates the numbers of people we have to have in any particular activity to get the same amount of output. That sounds harsh, but it's not harsh. It's glorious. It's how our standard of living evolves. Now, if our standard of living evolved over 400 years, and it took 400 years to get an improvement from that technology, it would be depressing. But that's not what happens. Year in and year out, the average worker gets better off because of these technological improvements. It's really the process that we talked about in the, uh, in the, in the uh, podcast on Schumpeter. 
Schumpeter called it creative destruction. It was the idea that new things came along that were better, destroyed the things that weren't as good, and freed up the resources to make even more other things. Now, in a, in a dynamic economy like the United States, the costs of that destruction are relatively small. The new things that come along come along very quickly. The ability of people to shift into new industries is fairly fast. The labor force is very dynamic. People move. They, they change locations. They find new skills. They acquire new skills. So the costs of these kind of changes are very small relative to the benefits, and most Americans understand that this system works pretty well. In other economies, as I alluded to in a recent podcast with Diane Quill, it might not work quite as well. The labor market might not be as dynamic. The ability of new resources to be put together in a, because of the capital market might be slower. But the United States, at least, it's worked, it's worked remarkably well. The ability of people to enjoy improvements of standard of living due to the technological improvements that, they, that have come from people's innovation and creativity is really quite astounding. Take a couple of other examples here. Uh, being a waiter, which is a relatively low-skilled job, it requires you to show up on work on time at work on time. It requires a certain pleasantness. It requires a certain ability uh, to keep a few things straight, maybe the ability to carry some trays on your shoulder. It, it used to be a job that a grown-up would aspire to in the United States and in Europe. Uh, not so much anymore. There's still places where you know quality of service is extremely high and a certain nuance and subtlety of the service is valued by the customers. But in most restaurants in America, waiting is either done by college kids or teenagers or not at all. That's what McDonald's is. That's what fast food is. Fast food is really getting rid of the waitering, waitressing experience because of the technology. And that's another example, dishwashing being another, where again in the 1940s and the 1950s, 1920s in America, uh, a dishwasher made a living. It was not a great living. It was unpleasant. You had your elbows and hot up your arms up to your elbows in hot, greasy, uh, soapy water. It was an unpleasant job at the bottom of the income distribution. One thing we haven't talked about, of course, is that many people start as waiters or busboys or dishwashers and go on to be successful doing other things as they acquire more skills or as they go on to save money and go off to college and do something else. I should mention that I don't think there's anything inherently demeaning about manual labor or the so-called menial jobs uh, that are done in our in an economy. People make less money than others for all kinds of reasons, sometimes by choice, sometimes not. I don't think that people who work with their hands providing services for others are inherently pitiful or oppressed or lead miserable, meaningless lives. Uh, often it's exactly the opposite. I, it's, it's strange that, that anti-capitalists alternate between honoring and snubbing people at the bottom, people who make less than others. Sometimes they're the salt of the earth. Other times they're the exploited masses who don't realize how oppressed they are. But dishwashing is not much of a job in America anymore. Most dishwashing is done mechanically. It's done by machines. Why? It's done by machines because people figured out a cheap two things were going on at the same time, and I haven't really made this clear. Two things that are going on at the same time are one, people are figuring out cheaper and cheaper ways to mechanize the process of washing dishes, and at the same time, dishwashers are being paid more and more, 
as the overall level of productivity in the economy is rising and people have alternatives to dishwashing that pay better than they did before. So as people's standard of living is improving, it becomes more and more economically rational and efficient to replace a dishwasher, the person with the dishwasher, the machine. And so that's what has happened. No one said, oh, we've got to make sure we keep a lot of poor people down at the bottom of the income distribution because otherwise who's going to wash the dishes? The answer is, is that if people escape from the bottom by acquiring more skills so that they have more alternatives so that they uh, are going to have to be paid more to get them to be dishwashers, uh, it's going to be harder to find dishwashers. That encourages people to find mechanical alternatives, technological alternatives to dishwashing and as those alternatives come online, as they come to exist and are less and less expensive, it becomes cheaper and cheaper to use them. And that's all. Both of those are good. Both of those help uh, incre increase our standard of living. So the interesting uh, thing, I encourage you to send in uh, your comments to the comments on this podcast. Think about jobs that were menial and unpleasant that used to get done uh, that don't get done anymore. Not because, oh, you know, this is the let – me, let me give you again this, the, the Marxist view. The Marxist view says, well, you know, if poor people somehow escape from poverty, we won't be able to have anyone to cut our lawn or, or wash our dishes or, or um, paint our houses. And the answer really is, in fact, uh, those jobs have disappeared because people got richer, which was great, and because technology came along to make it rational to use that technology instead of a human being, and fortunately, human beings don't have to do those jobs anymore. So we have dishwashers. Uh, we have uh, power spray painters and rollers and all kinds of technology in, in the painting business. We have um, a refrigerator instead of a, an ice man or a person driving the ice truck. And so all of those things, I think um, – still get done. They just don't get done in the same way. As people have gotten richer, as the poor have seen their standard of living rise, it no longer makes sense to do the jobs in the same way. Technology becomes profitable that was not profitable before. Uh, one example I, I, uh, I always think about is my, uh, my grandfather. My grandfather had a, um, I would say, a, a lower middle-class standard of living I grew up uh, in the middle of his uh, prime earning years. The Great Depression came along, and uh, my father was born in 1930, and that, I think, has uh, colored my father's attitudes towards money and certainly colored his father's, my grandfather's attitude towards money. So my grandfather uh, had a small house and yard in Memphis, Tennessee, and he had a lawnmower for cutting that, the lawn at that house. And that lawn was uh, cut by – not by hand, but pretty close to by hand. It was a push mower and not the kind of push mower that an environmentalist might buy today that doesn't use gasoline and has a certain um, suburban charm. Uh, this was, uh, in my memory, a cast iron uh, lawnmower. Probably the whole thing wasn't cast iron, but it was incredibly heavy. I remember as a child visiting my grandparents and trying to push that lawnmower around. Uh, my father, of course, wanted me to experience it. But despite my grandfather's relatively low income, he, uh, at some times in his life, maybe not every, uh, every year, but in some years of his life, he hired someone to cut his lawn. Uh, 
that person came from what was known in Memphis as the penal farm, which was a prison uh, that had a work release program that allowed people to – the prisoners to come do menial tasks around people's houses and yards. And uh, Albert used to come to my grandfather's house and push that lawnmower. And if you've ever been in Memphis in August uh, when it's about 105 or just 95 will do uh, with incredible humidity, it's unpleasant just being outside. Uh, it would be particularly unpleasant to push that lawnmower around, uh, that cast iron uh, hand lawnmower, no engine. Again, very environmentally friendly in the narrow sense of the word or the phrase. Uh, didn't use any gasoline. But it used a lot of human labor, a lot of human energy, and it was extremely unpleasant. And a person watching this in, say, 1945, 1950, or uh, watching my – you know, having my father do it, who did it many of the times when Albert either wasn't around or when my grandfather couldn't afford to pay Albert. But when uh, anybody pushing that lawnmower, you, you might drive by that house in Memphis, Tennessee and say, boy, yeah, that's – you know, look at this man. He's got somebody to cut his lawn. And boy, it's a good thing there are horribly poor people here to cut this person's lawn because otherwise he'd have to do it himself. And it's the existence of somebody on that prison or just somebody of low skills. Good thing for him that that's available. And uh, that's the perspective of that journalist, that news anchor, that uh, reporter from the National News that I was that I opened this podcast with. It's really not true, uh, and it's still it is true that lawns get cut today both by their owners and by uh, people that their owners, the owners hire. But cutting a lawn in 2008 is really different than cutting a lawn in 1948. Uh, so when my grandfather had Albert pushing that cast iron uh, lawnmower around, it was pretty unpleasant. I pay someone to cut my lawn. I have, also have a small lawn. But uh, it gets cut in about 10 minutes. Uh, not just because it's small, it is small, but it also gets cut in 10 minutes because the technology available to a lawn cutter in 2008 is radically different from the technology available to Albert in 1948. Uh, the difference is, is that the lawnmower is not a push mower, it's, and it's not just motorized in the sense that the blade goes around to do the cutting rather than the, put, the rolling of the lawnmower that moves the blades. But the reason that it gets it's so much easier to do in 2008, is that the lawnmower itself is motorized and the person driving it isn't sitting on it like a sit-down lawnmower. Typically, the person is standing on it and it's going at a very high rate of speed. It's actually a pretty skilled job. I, I couldn't do it. Um, you know, there's, sort of, there's two reasons that I pay someone to do it. One is that I'm not very good at cutting a lawn. I did it plenty when I was a kid. Don't enjoy it. Uh, but the person who cuts 50 lawns a day I exaggerate, 20, 30 lawns a day maybe, uh, does it with a piece of technology that it wouldn't be efficient for me to own, this stand-up, self-propelled lawnmower. So because this person's in the business of cutting lawns, uh, the person is able to uh, invest in this sit-down lawnmower that cuts lawns at remarkable speed incredibly quickly, such that I can afford to pay someone to do it, and it's a tremendous bargain for me. So it's a very good deal for me. It's also a very good deal for the Guatemalan who does it. And in Washington, D.C. area where I live, a lot of the people who do these lawn cutting jobs are immigrants, people who've come here from other uh, countries who had very low, little economic opportunity, 
where they came from. They come to Washington, D.C. or some other city, and they do, quote, a menial job, a relatively low-paying job, not to them. They think it's uh, gloriously well-paying, compared, good-paying compared to their alternative back in Honduras or Guatemala or wherever the country they started in. But they come and take this job, and it's true, they're relatively low-paid, but it's not because they're stuck there. They're going to their kids are often going to do a lot better than they are. Their kids are in school, and they're going to stay in school, I hope, and go on, some of them, to college and, and advanced degrees and, and make more, than, more money than I do, I hope. But the simple, just looking at the parent, if you just look at the point in time and say, wow, boy, it's a good thing there are low-skilled people so that we can have our lawns cut. If you don't look over time, you don't see the incredible transformation in that low-skilled job. So we looked at a bunch of low-skilled jobs earlier in the podcast that have disappeared so the least pleasant jobs get eliminated by technology because there's a, there's a financial incentive for people to develop those technologies. But even when the job doesn't get eliminated, it gets more pleasant. So the case of lawn cutting, true, it's still a relatively unpleasant experience to be uh, in Washington, D.C. in August or July cutting someone else's lawn. On the other hand, it's a lot more uh, pleasant than it used to be, and that's because of the innovations of technology. But to go back to our earlier point, we certainly don't, as as the homeowner and the person who pays for the lawn being cut at a relatively low price, I certainly don't have an incentive. I certainly don't want there to be poor people so that I'll always be able to get my lawn cut. Uh, I want people, we all want people to rise by, in their economic well-being and to do better. Again, it's not a zero-sum game. Their gains at the relative bottom as they move up, it doesn't come at my expense. It's good for me, and it's good for them. In the international level, the way you see this play out is China and Japan. You know, when Japan was thriving and doing extremely well in the 80s and 90s, a lot of Americans felt threatened by that. We see that today with China. People say, oh, they're going to catch up. They're going to pass us as if economics were a race. Again, as if it were a zero-sum game where their benefits means that we're going to do worse. If they get ahead, we're going to have to fall behind. And that's so untrue. It's particularly untrue. If you look at China, the way China has improved the standard of living of its people, the way China has gotten so many people out of poverty in the last 10, 15 years is by selling us stuff, making it more – America, selling Americans and other people stuff that they can make more cheaply than we can. And that's good for both of us. It's been phenomenal for them. It's also been good for us by buying things at a lower price from the Chinese than we could make them for ourselves. We're able to free up people and resources to make other things that we couldn't otherwise have. So China's success doesn't come at our expense. China's success is, increases our success. So when China does better, which I hope they do over the next 50 years, the next 20 years, how are they going to get better? How is their standard of living going to improve? By finding even better ways to make stuff for people outside of China, presumably, is one of the ways they're going to do better. That's good for us. That doesn't hurt us. That improves our lives. So it's a terrible, terrible mistake to see the world as a zero-sum game, to see the economy as a pizza where my slice grows at your expense. Simply isn't true. Let me summarize what I've been trying to say here. I know we've covered a lot of ground and uh, talked about a lot of different topics. I started with two questions. One, do poor people sustain the prosperity of the rich? Two, does the system, whether it's here in America or the international economy, require people at the bottom to sustain the whole thing? 
The first question, do poor people sustain the prosperity of the rich, implies a view of the economy as a zero-sum game, a world where the rich are rich because the poor are poor. I've tried to explain why I think that's wrong. If we look over time rather than at a point in time, it's clear that both rich and poor are better off today than they were, say, 100 or 50 years ago. The rich get richer without the poor doing worse, and the poor improve their standard of living without the rich losing income. The second question, does the system require people at the bottom for the whole thing to work? Now, at a point in time, there are people at the bottom. That's the nature of capitalism. Rewards aren't equal at a point in time for everyone. But that inequality doesn't sustain the system, and in fact, it masks what is really going on. The poor do help the rich when they work for them, providing services such as lawn cutting and painting and garbage collection. The rich benefit from the existence of people who can work for them. But the rich, in turn, help the poor by hiring them. It isn't a form of exploitation. Both groups are helping each other. That's the essence of exchange. No matter what your income, you get ahead in a market economy by providing something of value for others. No one should want people to be stuck where they are. We want people to get ahead because the way to get ahead in a market economy is to provide something of value. That's why we shouldn't worry about China getting ahead as if that would make America poorer. China will thrive just as Japan did by providing products and services valued by others. So Americans should, and people in the wealthy nations should want China and Japan and India and Vietnam to thrive, to do well, to do better, because that means they'll be making others better off at the same time. We don't need someone at the bottom to be making the stuff. We want poor people here in America to acquire more skills and improve their standard of living. That will make us richer, all of us. I made the point earlier that the poorest paying jobs in America have become more pleasant over time and that that's a good thing. Creativity and innovation and technology have worked together to make the jobs that were once unpleasant more pleasant. And some of those jobs, the least pleasant, have simply disappeared. That process of innovation is what creates our wealth. It's the great story of human progress, machines doing things that our bodies used to do so that we can do things that are more pleasant and creative and human. That should make it clear that there's no conspiracy to keep the poor poor or unhappy or miserable or stuck at the bottom. And that the jobs people do at a point in time aren't a very good predictor of how they'll be done in the future. No one is in charge of incomes, manipulating the system to keep some down so that others can rise. But of course, there are people trying to use the political process to their own advantage, steering resources their own way through the power of government. There is lobbying and special interests. The world would be a better place if government had less power. The world would be a better place if lobbying, say, for tax advantages for oneself became a waste of time. But overall, the American economy is under no one's control. Most of the outcomes at a point in time are overwhelmingly the result of individual choices, the choices we make to stay in school, what to study, whether to start a business, how much to save, and where to invest those savings. There's a great deal of mobility and opportunity in the American economy. But mobility and opportunity uh, – but more – excuse me, but more mobility and opportunity would be even better. And the best way to do that is to improve our education system, but that is a subject for another day. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I want to thank my students, Eli Dorado and Rosie Fike, for insights that helped me understand some of the ideas in today's podcast. See you next week. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. 
The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.